Hey everybody, this is Gene Troyer. I'm the lead pastor of Restore Church. And what a pleasure it is to welcome you to our podcast. It's my hope that you will be marked by love and encouraged in your faith and inspired to become all God has created you to be. Now I invite you to lean in and enjoy the podcast. Well, I'm excited to start a brand new series this morning. Um, How many... uh, AGT fans or American Idol fans or The Voice fans are in the house this morning. Anybody watch these shows? Yes. Yes. You should be unashamed. Those are great shows. They're so much fun. Brenda and I, like, um, you know, we got tired of Simon Cowles and his drama. So we didn't watch American Idol for a long time, but now they've got new judges. It's pretty fun again to watch that. Uh, The Voice is probably our all-time favorite. And this year, a girl named Tom was, whoo, did you all watch like the very first show when they got the four chair turn? Did you, did you hear that song? Like hopelessly, hopelessly hoping? Wow, Crosby, Stills and Nash, so, so good. If you haven't heard it recently, you need to go online and just YouTube it and watch it because it is, uh, it is just phenomenal. Isn't it awesome when Somebody that puts their heart and soul into what they're doing gets a four-chair turn. Or when someone gets the golden button, like they're automatically into the the finals. Or when somebody gets a golden ticket. Like this is so great. They get this affirmation for the hard work they've done. The coaches give them encouragement. It's like words of gold, words of gold, at just the right moment. Proverbs 25, 11 says, a word fitly spoken, which is like timely advice, is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. It is this, what, what we're talking about, a right word at the right time. We all need the right word at the right time, don't we? When someone is saved in that moment, I'm always, I always find it ironic how, how we can look at that and, and pull back uh, the covers a little bit and go, Wow, there has, that could have some actual uh, eternal significance here. If we look at this as more than just a, a golden moment where they get the golden ticket, there's more to it. There could be more to it if we look past just the present moment. I love golden opportunities. Golden opportunities, which, uh, which would indicate like things that are at a, at a pinnacle, like the best moment in your life. What do you remember of the best moment in your life? Maybe it was your child was born. Maybe it was the job that you had been wanting to get for so long and it finally came to you. What is that golden moment, that top of your mind, most awesome moment of your life? Well, we're going to uh, get into a series that's called Seven. We're going to look at the seven sayings from the cross, the golden words of Jesus from the cross. These words are a complete interpretation of God to mankind. See, everything at Golgotha, everything at Calvary, Golgotha, Calvary, uh, the place of the skull, Skull Hill, all of it is pointing to the same place. It is the place outside of Jerusalem that Jesus was, where Jesus was crucified. Everything that happened there is significant. And in a very real sense, these seven sayings reveal the Father's heart toward us, you and I, his creation. As I was preparing for this, I had to think about the, 
how at just the right time, Jesus came. Scripture tells us in Matthew or Galatians 4.4, at just the right time, God sent his son born of a woman. See, nothing is by mistake. God is sovereign, and at just the right time, you and I, we intersect. At just the right time, God brings people into our lives. At just the right time, Jesus was born as a baby to the Virgin Mary. At just the right time, 33, approximately 33 years of age, Jesus had this confrontation with the dark side. And at just the right time, everything came together. At just the right time, he hung on a cross. I hate that it was just at the right time in that moment. Just like, how is that possible? And yet at just the right time, Jesus fulfilled his mission. There's a little book called Gold from Golgotha. This is written by Russell Russell Bradley Jones. It's uh, out of print. This one is uh, founded on eBay. But it is out, it's out of print, but it is solid gold. It's called Gold from Golgotha. It takes the seven sayings from the cross. And from this, uh, we get uh, much of the series this morning. I also want to give credit to Levi Lusco from Life Church, who, uh, not from Life Church, but from, uh, what's the name of this church? Somebody help me out. Fresh Life. Fresh Life in Montana. Yeah, they did a series similar to this. So those are all things that are uh, Uh, pointing us toward this series. Let's look at the things, seven things Jesus said. If you don't know, here here they are. So think about this. Before darkness descended. So those of us that are familiar with this, this, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three have this, uh, this information, these scriptures, this story that is told. We know that before darkness descended, So we're talking that Jesus was crucified about nine o'clock in the morning. So before darkness descended, after he's on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. That's the first of the seven. Father, forgive them. And then he says, I assure you today you will be with me in paradise. This is when he's talking to the thief that is next to him. And then in John 19, 27, he looks out at the apostle John, the disciple John, and he says, here is your mother. Here's your mother. Dear woman, here's your son. Here's your mother. And then the darkness falls about noon. Darkness falls, and Matthew 27 records that he says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? At about three o'clock, the darkness passes. He's still hanging on the cross, and he says, I am thirsty. And as his death gets closer, he says, it is finished. And his last words, found in Luke 23, are, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. Today, I want us to look at the first word from the cross, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Do you all know what a dead man's handle is? A dead man's handle is something like, uh, well, for instance, on my lawnmower. I have a lawnmower, I sit on it, and uh, if I become incapacitated for some reason, I fall off the mower, Let's hope that doesn't happen. But if it does, I'm good. The dead man's handle saves me. The dead man's handle shuts that mower off. There's a switch in the seat that if I stand up, for example, 
That'll shut, shut the mower down. That's what a dead man's handle is. But a dead man's handle can also be used to activate a device. It can activate something. So if you think about a suicide bomber, a lot of times they'll have, if they're not, um, if the switch to the bomb is not activated remotely, they will sometimes have it in their hand. And all they have to do is let go of this and the bomb goes off. Now, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he releases the dead man's handle and the forgiveness bomb goes off. He releases the dead man's handle. The forgiveness bomb goes off and there is life for each one of us. Father, forgive them. Teresa Rita Watson writes these words. She says, forgiveness is liberating. You guys, I feel like we talk about forgiveness a lot here. And maybe it's because I have needed a lot of forgiveness. And maybe it's because I have needed to extend a lot of forgiveness in days when I didn't feel like extending forgiveness. Maybe it's because all of us are human. And maybe it's because all of us struggle with forgiveness. Forgiveness requires a level of humility. Forgiveness requires us to say, even when I don't feel like it, even when I don't want to, I'm going to forgive. I'm going to lay aside those things. Doesn't mean you ignore those things. It means that you lay them aside and you choose to think differently about a situation. Forgiveness is liberating. It frees us from negative attachments. This liberates us from the cycle of negativity and anger, allowing us to open our hearts to gratitude, to happiness, and to love once again. Focusing on forgiveness, training one's brain. See, this is what's, what's needed. Training one's brain for gratitude. It's this thing of thinking differently with a renewed mind. Or accepting gratitude as an attitude clears a path of embracing forgiveness and promoting positive relationships and a certain peace of mind. Yeah, these are the words of Jesus from the cross. Father, Father, forgive them. For God, Father, forgive them. It's, it's from the cross. And it's a prayer. It's his first prayer. And what a time and a place for prayer. Isn't that odd? Like you and I would think of us ourselves in an excruciating, painful place. Would we pray? Or would we do otherwise? Would we pray or do we just worry? Do we pray or do we just talk about our situation? What a time and a place for prayer. Now we think that today. We look at that and go, wow, that's, that's really something. But in the ancient days of these people of that day, they had little awareness of what it means to forgive. I mean, the, Roman, the Romans worshiped revenge as God. And their preferred method of revenge, their preferred method of punishment was crucifixion. Historians record that the Roman government, uh, they executed about 30,000 people through crucifixion. Hebrew ethics required an eye for an eye and blood for blood. It was usual for the victims that were hanging on the cross to not pray, but to spit and curse and scream at the spectators. But Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed. This is, this is, after, this is after being 
betrayed by one of his disciples, Judas, and then deserted by the rest of them. This is after everything that was going well from all appearances got turned upside down. The people were desperate to rid themselves of this Jesus who was disassembling their religion and their power structures. So who did they go to? They went to the Romans, their mortal enemies. The people they hated, they went to the Romans. And there, Jesus was falsely accused of treason toward Roman, toward Rome and for blasphemy of the Hebraic law. They took him before Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest. And Caiaphas knew that there was only a certain, he didn't have the right to execute Jesus, and so he took him to Pilate. Pilate, the governor of Judea. And Pilate knew that Herod, King Herod, was in town, and so he was like, let's take him to King Herod. King Herod didn't like what he saw, but he didn't want to do anything about it, and so he sends him back to Pilate. We have this kangaroo, kangaroo, kangaroo courts. Like kangaroo courts are like courts that are, that are done under the cover of night a lot of times. They're not justified. They are uh, a few people getting together, sentencing someone for something that they may or may not have done. It is an illegitimate, illegitimate court. And so he is again in front of Pilate. And Pilate says, I find no record of wrong. He argues with the Jewish people to say, I don't know what you want me to do and why you want me to do this. And finally, he asked him, he asked for a bowl of water. He asked for a bowl of water. And I imagine him walking over here uh, to, to the side. He's taking off a ring and his watch. And he's thinking. He's spending as much time as he can to process He rolls up his sleeves. And he says, I'm washing my hands of this travesty. I want nothing to do with this. He's your responsibility. His blood's on you. I want nothing to do with this. You washing your hands of anything? Pilate had the opportunity to do something, to do the right thing, to release Jesus. He didn't have to wash his hands of it. He didn't have to say, I'm walking away from this. Some of us have responsibility for things that we're washing our hands of. I'm not doing that. I'm washing my hands of it. When you wash your hands of something We think it cleans our hands, don't we? 
You wash your hands of something that you're not just wash your hands of. Sometimes your hands are dirtier than before you started. Who are you washing your hands of? What are you washing your hands of? This is not to say that sometimes we step away from things that we cannot continue to be in. We need to separate ourselves. But we should never take the excuse of something being hard, something being difficult. And yet, we're called to stay in it. We're called not to wash our hands of it. But instead, Pilate relents to the mob. Mob rules. Mob, the mob ruled the day. And he gave in. Because why not? Because why not? When you wash your hands of something, you've got to have some good reasons for washing your hands of something. And for him, it was a loss of income. If he had one more rebellion in the Judea countryside or in the city, he might lose his job. He might lose his income. And so instead, he gives in and he says, all right, all right, it's on you. I want nothing more to do with it. It's on you. And so he sends Jesus to be flogged, scourged. And this was just a, a precursor to what was to come. Flogging was in the ancient days delivered with a whip to which were connected leather straps that had shards of glass, iron balls, uh, bones. They were all attached to the ends of the whip. And so as these leather tentacles, if you can imagine, typically they would be, the, the, the person that was being inflicted with the, the whip would be bent over, usually tied to a post, and they're flogged with this whip. So the tentacles come around, they wrap around the body, and as they do, they don't just make a slight tap, they actually tear off the flesh until the back of the person being whipped is raw and bleeding. Now, in the Roman world, there, were no limit to, there was no limit to the number of lashes that they could deliver. In the Hebrew culture, they would stop at 39 because 40 was the, 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 the limit according to the, the Hebrew law. 40 was the limit, so they'd stop at 39 to make sure they didn't break the law. The Romans had no such rule or law. The inhumanity of this is incalculable. After the flogging, the victim would carry his own crossbar, so the, the patibulum, which is the crossbar of the cross, weighing somewhere in the neighborhood of 75 to 125 pounds. That's placed on their shoulders, usually tied on their shoulders, so that their hands are fixed. And as they're walking down the street, if they fall, they're gonna fall on their face. And so Simon of Cyrene, I, I would imagine, just let your imagination run here. But if, if, you have a, if, you're, if, if the flogging is to the extreme that we believe it was, then Jesus is weak, he has lost blood, he is not capable of holding an additional 75 to 125 pounds on his back. And so Simon of Cyrene was spotted in the crowd and they forced him to carry the cross. As they led Jesus through the city, we'll pick it up in Luke 23, two others, 
Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. And when they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And sometimes we see pictures of the cross that is 20 feet high and, you know, at least 10 to 15 feet off the ground, it seems like. Most likely, the cross was just a few feet off the ground. And there was a sign attached to the cross saying, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, here it is. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. The first word was a prayer. Father, forgive them. I wonder if you can reconstruct the picture. Can you see it? Can you see it in your mind's eye? I'm going to read from Gold from Golgotha for just a minute. Arriving at the place of the skull, Jesus looked about and prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As the centurion crushed him to the ground and tied his arms to the crossbeam, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When the blunt spikes tore through each quivering palm, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When they elevated him to the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When the crowd cursed and reviled, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When the soldiers parted his garments and gambled for the seamless robe, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. These words, Father, forgive them, are not just a one-time utterance. In the original Greek, Jesus said is an action verb that indicates that Jesus kept on saying. He kept on saying. It wasn't just, Father, forgive them. But it was at every infraction, every moment, every stab of pain, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Who do you need to forgive this morning? Peter came to Jesus and said, how many times do I have to forgive my brother or my sister? How many times? Is seven times enough? Is seven times enough? And I imagine like Peter's fed up with somebody. They've come to him over and over and over, probably six times for the same thing. And he keeps having to wonder like, how many times do I have to forgive this guy? He keeps doing the same thing. Jesus says, Yeah, seven times, 70 times. Woo! For the same thing? The same person who has hurt me over and over and over? Are you kidding me? 70 times, seven? Let me do my multiplication. 490 times for the same thing? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. See, when, when the tragedies of life, when things happen, when things don't seem to be fair, when they just keep coming up and coming up and coming up again and again, we have the propensity to doubt the reality of a loving God, don't we? And maybe we're just all playing a dangerous game of chance. But we can follow the example of Jesus because when when good fortune seemed to turn his back to 
Jesus. When everything turned to black, when the wolf pack raged, and Jesus was slipping into the abyss of pain and aloneness and desertion, he said, Father. See, he never doubted his sonship. You, can, you must never doubt your daughtership, your sonship. You are a child of God. To remember that even in the darkest moments is to remember as Jesus remembered. In the garden, before the crucifixion, in the garden, he was praying as was his habit, the scriptures say. See, you and I sometimes, we get to a point of, of deep pain, of, of unfairness, of trouble. Oh, oh yeah, God, I better start praying about this. Here's the deal. Pray before you get in the tight spot. Develop a habit of prayer, a habit of prayer where it's not just kind of out of sight, out of mind until, whoa, things get really bad. And now I better start praying. No, Jesus developed this habit of prayer. He had established rhythms in his life. Prayer was as natural as breathing. And so in his darkest hour, he takes a deep breath in and he slides his backside up the cross, the backside that has already been torn to shreds by the flogging. Someone was kind enough to probably put a, a footrest to where he could actually place his feet to get himself up so they could fill his lungs with air enough to speak the words, Father, forgive them. Seven times he rubbed his back up the cross. Seven times the blood poured out again so that he could speak these words that we talk about this morning. He didn't say, Father, forgive me. He said, Father, forgive them. He didn't say, Father, forgive me. He knew that, his, that he was clean. He was coming before the Father, and he was clean. He was the pure one. He was offered as the redemption for our sin. He knew this, and his first thought was not for the hurt that was being done to him, but for the hurt that they were doing to themselves, the executioners, we're doing to themselves. See, when we sin, we like to think, oh, it just impacts us. We like to think that it's just about us. Look, if we're two consenting adults, ain't nobody getting hurt, right? We're all connected. We're all connected at some level. And when we think that what we do, what our actions what the actions are that, we, that we, we, we take when we think that it doesn't matter because it isn't hurting anybody else, we're believing a lie. So let's just call it out this morning. If you don't think that your life matters, if you don't think that what you do has implications far down the road, it really does for good or bad, for good or bad. On the cross, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Give them mercy even though mercy is withheld from me. Give them a chance, Father. His prayer was a, a petition to charge their wrongdoing to his account. It's like he's saying, I'm gonna pay every last penny of their obligation. I'm gonna stand in for them. Brian Zond in his book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, says this. He says, to forgive sinners is the nature of God. 
When Jesus prayed on the cross for the forgiveness of his executioners, he was not acting contrary to the nature of God. He was revealing the nature of God as forgiving love. See, the cross is not what God does. The cross is who God is. What Jesus is practicing on the bloody hill is what he spoke on that sunny meadow. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The words he spoke on this, in the Sermon on the Mount are the words he's living out. He said things like, you've heard it said, but I tell you, if you are angry with your brother, you're actually guilty of murder. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but look, if you look in lust toward another person, you've already gone down that road. Eye for an eye, blood for blood, no, turn the other cheek. Live generously. Jesus released the dead man's handle. He released that forgiveness bomb. And who was he forgiving? Who? It was for everybody. It was for those leaders of that day. It was for the executioners. It was for the soldiers. It was for his disciples who had deserted him. It was for you and I, all of us, freely forgiven. And so we freely forgive. He taught us to pray. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. See, at the cross, Jesus saw what they couldn't possibly have seen. Remember in the garden when Peter took up the sword, cut off the high priest's servant's ear? Jesus said in that moment, he said, don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us and he would send them instantly? And so he prayed, Father, forgive. Give them a chance. Hold off. Don't destroy them. Father, forgive them. What Jesus didn't do was remove the consequences for their action. He didn't remove the consequences for their action. You and I sometimes tell our kids, right? When our kids were little, it was like, say you're sorry. Say you're sorry. Sorry. <laughs> it didn't mean much. It didn't mean much. We like to think that if we say sorry, if we ask for forgiveness, then we will avoid the consequences. We won't uh, suffer the consequences. See, there's no cheap grace. We're not talking about cheap grace here. This was costly grace. This is the reality of the cross. What Jesus did was defeat sin and death forever. At the cross, he makes forgiveness possible. At the cross, he makes it an option. At the cross, forgiveness is offered, but it's not forced. You hear me there? Hear me now. At the cross, forgiveness is offered. It is not forced. And this is the beautiful tragedy of the cross, that the offer of forgiveness, peace with God, would be left on the table. Some of us have done financial deals. And one of the conversations that always happens is, well, I don't want to leave any money on the table. Like if I can get a little more for this, why would I not negotiate so that I get everything that I can get from this deal? Some of us have left an awful lot on the table when it comes to our relationship with Jesus or not. 
1829, two men, George Wilson and James Porter, robbed a United States mail carrier. Both were captured and tried in a court of law. And in May of, that, of 1830, both men were found guilty of six charges, including robbery of the mail and putting the life of the driver in jeopardy. Both Wilson and Porter received their sentences, which was death by execution by hanging on July the 2nd. Porter was, scheduled, was executed on schedule, but Wilson was not because Wilson had some influential friends that contacted President Andrew Jackson and got a pardon for him. But guess what? Even though he was pardoned, he wasn't going to get executed, he wasn't going to hang from the gallows, he was only going to serve 20 years in prison for his crime. He refused the pardon. He refused the pardon. The official report stated that Wilson chose to waive and decline any advantage or protection which might be supposed to arise from the pardon. The United States Supreme Court determined that the court cannot give the prisoner the benefit of the pardon unless he claims the benefit of it. It is a grant to him. It is his property. He may accept it or not as he pleases. Chief Justice John Marshall wrote, a pardon is an act of grace. You with me? And a pardon is an act of grace. But delivery is not complete without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered, and we have no power of the court to force it on them. George Wilson committed a crime. He was tried. He was found guilty. He was sentenced for execution. But a presidential decree granted him a full pardon. When he chose to refuse that pardon, he chose to die. Now, you and I hear this story, and we might wonder, how could anyone refuse a pardon for the death sentence? How could anyone refuse a pardon? That man must have been a fool. But what if? What if the future that you imagine is predicated on your reception of grace and mercy? What if the future you imagine depends on your receiving the pardon that is on the table? The scriptures teach, and I believe that our life, our real life begins when we receive the forgiveness offered for our sin and live into bringing the kingdom of God to earth. See, the other option, of course, is to leave your freedom on the table. The other option is never picking up your golden ticket. The other option is to ignore the four-chair turn and go back to what you were doing. Just plead ignorance and carry on. No one forces this on us. Here's what I know. The scriptures don't lie. The scriptures tell the truth. In Romans 3.23, we read this. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If you say, well, I don't need a pardon. Well, 1 John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In Romans 6.23, we read, for the wages of sin is death. The Old Testament concurs with this when we read in Ezekiel 18.4, the soul that sins, it shall die. This doesn't really sound like good news, does it? But God has provided a pardon, one he makes available to all of us. He knocks at the door and waits. 2 Peter 3.9 says, the Lord, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 1 John 1.9 explains that we must accept this pardon. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
The relevance of the cross to our faith is that without the cross, there is no salvation. Without repentance, without an acknowledgement of our sin and an acceptance of the pardon that is offered by the death of Jesus, there is no salvation. Even though it's offered, you and I have got to receive it. We've got to surrender to the work of Christ in our lives. You can stand with me. Band, you can come on up. This has kind of been a hard word, I know. But in some respects, I think we've become spiritually lazy and gullible people. We want to be spoon-fed and told what's right and wrong instead of taking the bull by the horns, the spiritual horns, and doing what God's calling us to do. We want to wash our hands of certain circumstances because, well, it's because we want to. We look at our Ukrainian brothers and sisters in this moment and we see the dire straits that they're in and we feel empathy and compassion. It ought to drive us to prayer. It ought to drive us to reconsider our own lives, to say, have I stepped into the places that I need to step into? Am I being effective with the way that I'm living my life? Are the words that I'm speaking, are they words of life or are they words of death? The truth is, Ukraine is, I don't know, 6,000 miles away. They have, they have great churches there. They have great people there. They're not an anomaly. Their proximity to Russia seems to be at this point the thing that is the issue. My point is just, that when we think life is going well, and when we think life is without difficulty, let's be in the habit of prayer. Let's be in the habit of being in the house. Those of you online this morning, I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful that you're where you are, that you've joined us. All of us together, we can be a spiritual force. We can be a force for good in our community, in our world. But you and I, you and I must be the people that come to the Father, not in just our moments of crisis, but in our everyday life. We form a habit of prayer. We form a habit of coming before the Father. We, we form a habit that says, before anything else is my relationship with Jesus. So I don't know where you're at this morning with all of this, but it's a golden opportunity to turn from what was to what has been and, and away from what has been. Stepping toward a future that is waiting for us. If you've been, if you've been uh, dipping your toes in a little bit, on the edges, trying to stay unknown in our community. If you've been outside for a while and are just recently stepping back in again, if you're trusting us, even to the extent that you're gathering with us, this is really good. It's a really good first step. 
But I'm just encouraging you that to skirt around the edges of a spiritual community, to just dip your toes in and back out again. Like you have to figure out, why do you do that? Why are you just kind of poking in here and there? What keeps you from settling in? What keeps you from committing? You have to answer that question. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. These are the words I want to leave you with this morning. These are the words that I would encourage you to speak this week. When something comes up against you, when things don't go as planned, Father, forgive them. Let me pray. God, you are so good. And your mercy endures forever. We're so grateful, God, this morning that the words that you spoke from the cross, these three words, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. These are powerful words that as we live into them and as we become the people who live in forgiveness, who extend forgiveness, God, we know that that is where life is. When we submit ourselves to you, when we live into the forgiveness you offer, God, that is where real life is experienced. Now I pray for each one in this space, everyone online, that as we consider our own position, what we've washed our hands of, that maybe we should have stayed engaged. Where that is, God, give us courage to step back in. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. Please rate and review us on Spotify and iTunes and join us again for next week's podcast. We love you and pray blessing and peace over you and your family.